Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi, excited to bring you episode three today, which features an interview later on with the incomparable Sierra Hull. She's a three-time International Bluegrass Music Association Mandolin Player of the Year. She's a Grammy nominee, and she's also a super cool lady. We've really enjoyed getting to know Sierra over the years, playing with her a ton and watching her amazing career unfold. So stay tuned for that. We'll talk about Bela Fleck's advice as a producer, the current state of bluegrass affairs, what Sierra is listening to now, and all kinds of other fun things. But before we get to our interview with Sierra, I want to dig in a little bit to the current state of bluegrass affairs right here and now, because I think it will help give us some context and help us understand the importance of the kinds of artists that I'm having on Inside the Musician's Brain, guys like Paul Hoffman, Green Sky, Billy Strings, and definitely Sierra, to understand a little bit more where their music came from and how they fit into the bigger musical picture 
that's stirring out there. So let's jump right into an abbreviated history of the music. Most aficionados agree that the advent of bluegrass was in 1946, when Earl Scruggs' three-finger banjo style combined with Bill Monroe's songcraft that was derivative of gospel, country, blues, and string band traditions to form a version of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys that is widely regarded as the gold standard of bluegrass. They had a legendary performance on the Grand Ole Opry in December of that year, And that kicked off an incredible two-year run of music. And after those two years, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs break off to form their own seminal group, Flatt and Scruggs, while Bill Monroe continues his pioneering work with a rotating cast of players over the years that follow. So Bluegrass is born 1946, and immediately, since this style has gravity and people are connecting to it, other people start learning this stuff and playing bluegrass and along come the Stanley brothers who learn everything Monroe plays on his radio show and then they play it on their broadcast within a week's time. The musical style starts taking root and starts to grow. And just as soon as it starts to grow, it starts to evolve because the new voices that are coming into bluegrass are putting their own twist on. And if you look at the Stanley brothers, they sort of add this old time mountain element and This is a theme in bluegrass, as it is with any thriving style. New voices are coming into the music, they're incorporating new and different influences, and they're doing things their own way. Sometimes that's more subtle, sometimes it's more drastic. So now bluegrass is getting established, and you have all kinds of new artists coming into the fold. Reno and Smiley, the Osborne brothers, Jimmy Martin, and again, these are all innovators in in their own right. They're drawing on what Monroe did, but they're also moving the music forward. So baked into Bluegrass's early history, you not only have a very set example of what this sound is supposed to be, Flat and Scruggs, Bill Monroe, but you also have an incredible spirit of innovation. And I think that that often gets overlooked today, but we'll get back to that part. So Bluegrass is taking root, more bands, more fans, but the music never really attains any commercial or mainstream success. Bluegrass's notoriety is bolstered by the folk boom of the 1960s. Around that time, you also have the advent of music festivals, which definitely helps bluegrass to get out there. And then you also have these anomalous one-off instances of bluegrass being exposed to a much larger audience. Uh, And Olden in the Way in the 1970s is a great example of that. Jerry Garcia, avid banjo player, teams up with Grisman. Rowan, Vassar Clements, John Kahn, and creates a version of bluegrass that is going out to the Grateful Dead fan base. So bluegrass is hitting all these new ears, but it still remains a relatively underground style, despite the fact that we have essentially this early proof through bands like Olden and The Way that it could have a much broader appeal. Now, I should say that we can't even possibly get close to mentioning all the influential bluegrass bands that are coming around during this time, the Country Gentlemen, the Kentucky Colonels later on, J.D. Crow and the New South, the Seldom Seen, the Johnson Mountain Boys. Bluegrass music is still producing some of the most incredible, virtuosic, soulful music all through this period, despite the fact that it's not really attaining huge amounts of success or mainstream appeal. And by the 1980s, 
bluegrass in its more traditional form, even though there are some great bands around, is essentially in decline. And this is where things start to get really interesting as we head toward the turn of the century. The music starts to undergo evolution like it really had never known before. Guys like Grisman, Sam Bush, Tony Rice, Jerry Douglas, and Bela Fleck are taking the music in drastically new directions, all still essentially rooted in those traditional styles of playing, but such an eclectic new set of influences are coming in, and the music that's being produced is really taking things a step further. Bands like Newgrass Revival and the seminal progressive album The Telluride Sessions are showing people the endless possibilities of this incredible form of music. And it's also around this time that we start to see huge advancements in the technology that surround the production of live concerts. New venues, bigger lighting rigs, better sound, and also pickups for the acoustic instruments as opposed to the microphones that had always been used and are still mostly used in the traditional world. These factors are all becoming a way of life for musicians who are coming up in this era. Now, these production elements aren't something that traditional bluegrass music was ever known for, and it still isn't today. But if you look at the cutting edge of bluegrass, not only are the songwriting and the playing styles evolving at a rapid rate, but so too are people's imaginations around how this music can be presented. And it's at this time that we start to see the origins of the jamgrass movement. Leftover salmon forms in 1989, followed by the string cheese incident and Yonder Mountain String Band in the late 90s, and bluegrass music is off and running in an entirely new direction. It's not just the music that's evolving, but also the way that that music is presented in a live environment. Bands like Salmon Cheese and Yonder are touring, playing shows in clubs, selling hard tickets with a production, lights, and sound that had never really been associated with bluegrass before. And they're also drawing on post-Grateful Dead elements of experimental live shows, tons of jamming, and also the word-of-mouth fan base factor. And all these elements are coming together to create so much more accessibility and popularity around progressive bluegrass. Now, a key quick part of this discussion is that traditional bluegrass people would probably tell you that these new forms of music aren't bluegrass. And while I don't agree with that, I think we can all agree that there's really no set definition of the music. But it is pretty indisputable to say that these new forms of music are absolutely related to bluegrass and are an evolution of the style. Yes, bands like Cheese are bringing in drums and electronic elements that clearly were not a part of old-school bluegrass, but they're also playing fiddle tunes, and there's mandolin, guitar, and fiddle all represented on stage. And then look at Yonder, a four-piece band, mandolin, guitar, banjo, and bass. They're playing their own songs, but they're also doing tons of bluegrass covers, John Hartford songs. It's clearly a new vision of bluegrass music. And the same can be said for a lot of the bands that we see having so much success today. Now, the traditional world soldiers on through this time and still sticks to its core values, the sound of Bill Monroe and Flatt and & Scruggs, and they don't embrace all the evolution that's going on, and they're not able to tap into the mainstream success that bands like Yonder & Cheese are experiencing. But a whole new model, a whole new template for what the music can be and what kind of fan base it can reach are being established. And that's what's given rise to the bluegrass movement that we are a part of today. 
Bands like Green Sky, Railroad, The Dusters, festivals like Winter Wondergrass and Strings and Soul, none of this stuff was going on 15 years ago. But fast forward to today, and we really see two distinct worlds of bluegrass music. One more traditional, with less commercial appeal, one more progressive, with a much bigger fan base. And my big theory about why things have shaken out this way is that traditional bluegrass fans are not like normal music fans. And that's because a lot of traditional fans also play the music. It's not like rock and roll where you need drum kits and amps and a dedicated space. We can just pick up and play banjos and fiddles in the living room. And with all that extra invested time and energy comes an increased ownership over the style and so many opinions about what the music should be. So on the one side, you have this growing, evolving style and all these open-minded fans who are just discovering it for the first time. And on the other side, you have a more traditional vibe where you have fans who are really deeply into the music and they get it and they know what they're talking about and they play it well, but they also, they know what they like and they care about preserving those core aesthetic values and they don't necessarily value that evolution element. It's just a way of life in traditional bluegrass, even though a lot of those artists would love to be exposed to these newer fans. Now, whether it would actually connect aesthetically and whether they would dig it that's kind of another question entirely, but if I had to guess, I would say that they would in some way, but you can debate about that all day. And regardless, it's plain to see that these days bluegrass really is in these two very separate worlds. And it really remains to be seen whether those old school fans can embrace that evolution factor. And if you're wondering, why does any of this even matter? Why would the traditional world need to open its arms to more progressive strains of the music? I would say it's simply to shine a light on some of the incredible trad acts that are out there. The deep quality old school sounds that are still being produced today by so many quality acts that would love the possibility of that increased exposure. And I would also say that it's the fans who really hold the key to this connection of these two worlds of bluegrass. And by no means am I telling traditional fans what to do, but simply pointing out that this possibility is out there and also reiterating the fact that traditional artists by and large are absolutely in favor of it and only time will tell how that situation will shake out but it sure is an interesting question to ponder and i always tell people bluegrass music especially in its more traditional forms will live on for one very simple reason it's so badass the music is just incredible incredibly deep culturally rich and i feel so lucky to be a part of it Okay, I think that does it for the abbreviated history lesson, but that's actually a great segue to my interview with Sierra Hull, who is an artist who has bridged that gap herself. I would argue that she started out in the more traditional world, but these days her music and her fan base are branching out in incredibly vibrant ways. I'm proud to call Sierra a friend, but mostly I'm just a fan. She is such a shredder and an incredible songwriter and singer as well, and I'm just excited to see where her career takes her. So without further ado, let's jump ahead to my conversation with Sierra Hall from about a month back. Okay, we're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and we we put this one together on short notice, but I have to say, from the time that I had the idea to do 
the podcast, this lady's name was on a really short list of people that I hoped that I would get to connect with. We're in the presence of bluegrass royalty today. <laughs> Three-time reigning International Bluegrass Music Association Mandolin Player of the Year. And just an incredible singer-player. And also a really cool and genuine lady who we've enjoyed getting to know and play with over the past few years, Sierra Hall. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm so excited s- you're doing this. I'm so excited that I'm doing this with you right well, now. This is thanks for having this me. This is awesome. Let's let's get deep. It. So let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, we're here at a festival in Virginia where the Dusters are playing and Sierra is playing as well, and we're gonna we're gonna have some jams. But um, oh yeah. I, I like to start out by just kind of talking about, you know, your your start with your journey in music. And I know that you've been playing since you were a youngster. And actually, we, we were trying to guess last night. How old were you when you did the, <laughs> the Opry with Allison? So the first time I played with, with Krauss on the Opry, I was 11. 11 years old. I just old. turned 11 years old, okay. yeah. You know what I was doing when I was 11? <laughs> not, not, playing, not playing on the Grand Ole Opry. Um... <laughs> That's really cool. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the the real flame, the thing that kind of made you decide, okay, you know, I've obviously got a, a thing here with music, but I'm, I'm going to devote my life to this. I'm going to put all my energy into creating original music and, and getting out there and playing it for people. Yeah, well, you know, I always um, heard music as a kid in church and, you know, around. I grew up in rural Tennessee, about two hours northeast of Nashville, a little town called Birdstown. And, you know, there's a lot of music in that area in general. People kind of just play and sing as a way of life, you know, not necessarily everybody's trying to be on a stage. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't uncommon to hear my granny sing or, you know, my mom singing to me when I was, you know, three or four years old teaching me songs, um, my brother and I. But my dad kind of got bit by the bluegrass bug when I was about seven or so, and he started wanting to learn to play some instruments. My mom's uncle, who was our next-door neighbor, was self-taught on mandolin and fiddle, and he wasn't a real skilled player. I don't know if he'd ever had any kind of lessons or knew that many chords, but he would always just be playing these, you know, little melodies on the mandolin or fiddle, and I would walk into their house. So those sounds were always familiar to me, so it wasn't um, that far-fetched of an idea to think that I would learn to play an instrument. And so my dad started trying to get my brother to to play something and then um you know he's my only sibling my older brother i mm-hmm. wanted to do everything he did oh, yeah, so you know it's such a follower <laughs> but i was like well i want to play something too and so my granny and um her sister my great aunt and the uncle that i was talking about um they went in together and bought me a fiddle for christmas but it was a full size it was just i was tiny for eight years old so i couldn't <laughs> really it was just too big i couldn't reach it but my dad had just bought a mandolin and was starting to learn some tunes and some chords and so he was like well hey why don't I show you how to play a tune on the mandolin because they're tuned alike and we'll get you a smaller fiddle but at least you'll kind of know how to play a song you'll just have to figure out the bow but so I was like okay and so he taught me how to play Boldham Cabbage Down or something like that and um I really just fell in love with it I I you know, spend the next few weeks learning some things on the mandolin, and then it, you know, kind of turned into, well, if you'll stick with it, we'll get you your own mandolin. Now, the tunes I was learning was on my Uncle Junior had um, 
sent a tater bug mandolin, the bullback, like old Italian oh, yeah. mandolins. We call them tater bugs uh, in Tennessee. But um, he had kind of sent that down to our house, and my dad had that. And so that was what I learned my first few tunes on. And so my parents were kind of like, well, if you'll stick with it in a few months, like we'll get you your own mandolin. And so I just really went for it. I yeah. just fell in love with it immediately. And I really can't remember a time when I didn't think I wanted that to be my life you know looking back on it I feel like I kind of knew immediately like this is what I'm gonna do um and maybe a lot of that had to do with you know when you're new to music like I didn't know anything about bluegrass I'd grown up listening to some of like Dole Austin and Quicksilver and some of those gospel songs we would sing those in church sometimes so I was hearing you know some bluegrass but then I remember dad getting a Larry Sparks tape and us kind of just really going wow this is awesome and yeah. uh, Tony Rice Church Street Blues was like an early you know cassette tape that we just were like whoa this is so great and you know I slowly started like getting all these new albums every week and yeah. just kind of going wow these are my heroes and I want to do what they're doing I want to do that when did the gigs start well, funny enough, I started going to these jams on the weekend, So, which was another reason I think that I really connected with the idea of just being a musician and playing the community of musicians uh, was huge for me. Like yeah. I had a... Um, like a local jam about 30 minutes down the road that I could go to. My dad and I would go a lot of times on Friday and Saturday evenings. We would go to these local jams and it would be, you know, looking back now, just me and a bunch of old dudes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, but they welcomed me into the, you know, these circle jams and they're playing all this music from like Bill Monroe to Flat and Scruggs to Stanley's and stuff that I maybe didn't even know that I was hearing Bill Monroe tunes, for example, but I was hearing this kind of catalog of music that we all now know and love and think of as sort of that traditional catalog but I was learning this and and you know just being welcomed in really made me go man I love this this is really you know this is what I want to do and so they started having me get up on stage you know at these little local things even before I could really play much I would chop along and then it wasn't long before you know they'd be like why don't you and your brother play a few songs so we sort of had these kind of like little local gigs um, that weren't paid gigs they were just sort of like the people who would be jamming in the back room would maybe get on stage and play for a crowd of like playing for people playing for people like you know 30 40 people out there having a hamburger on a Saturday night (laughs) here in bluegrass and then like churches would have us come play and things like that and uh you know so then word kind of gets out and before you know it we're playing at this local event or this local event and a lot of times it would just be me and my brother and my dad it's such a cool thing about bluegrass that i i think people who are not involved with the community they know music and they know music and there are different scenes and different genres but bluegrass i know i was definitely drawn in you know when i was learning to play when i was in college just by the community jams and friends and a scene and all based around the music and i was going to these jam sessions up in rural new hampshire and vermont and it's it's amazing how i hear that story from a lot of bluegrass pickers you know welcomed into that world and and you know you sort of you have this 
this place, this musical home, and a lot of things really grow out of that and flourish out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny because it's like, you know, here I was this little, like, eight-year-old girl or whatever, but I'm just like, yeah, these bluegrass dudes, these are my friends, Mm -hmm. you know? It's just there's, like, a bond that you get through playing music with people that's really special, and I I was always excited to go, cool, I can't wait to get back and jam with so-and-so, you know, and and sing with my dad, you know? It was just this really special community when we when we go to play gray fox you know once every few years and that's where that you know new england crowd is yeah. and i still go connect with those same people so cool. who i jam i'm sure probably the same for you you see some of those old faces and yeah every once like in a proud. while when i oh it's just it's so cool you yeah. know because these are you know people that I, I sometimes wonder if they realize how much they taught me Exactly. You know, yeah. like I'm so grateful that I yep. had this like incredible learning ground. Yep. Just, you know, not only was it fun, but I was just learning a ton from right. And these weren't professional players. Sure. They're, you know, um, people that just did it for fun because they loved it. Well, you're grateful and we're grateful too because <laughs> it has it has definitely, you know, I want to say started, but you're you're well into your career now and I want to kind of like fast forward a little bit i want to talk a little bit about weighted mind your last release but i'm curious what are your your modern influences like what music are you listening to now that you're digging on you know there's so much really cool production stuff on weighted mind and it's not a bluegrass record so what's you know what's what's playing for you these days yeah i you know i jump around a lot i i um love so many different styles of music like you know just yesterday i was um playing some stuff for the guys uh in the band and and you know i just watched some of the ken burns documentary and like some of the jimmy rogers stuff and so like you know miss the mississippi and in uh you miss the mississippi and you yeah have you heard this track i have not track no it's like unbelievable and it's like i was you know digging into some of that stuff um while at the same time you know it's like the taylor swift album just came out and i was checking that out it's like i try to check out a lot of and not because i'm just like some big taylor swift fan but it's like i kind of like to you know if, if a new uh album comes out by somebody that's sort of you know a thing and a even a cultural moment you know i like to try to to give that a chance and listen to it you know i love everything from like digging back into old stuff you know there's always old favorites like Joni mitchell paul simon dolly parton people like that but then also you know being able to to check out some newer things that are kind of current whether it's pop music or old kind of throwback you know jazz or whatever so as far as more current stuff is part of that you're as an artist thinking to yourself there's something going on here many people are connecting with whatever it is this new taylor swift album you know i want to kind of see what that's all about and try to understand that i think i think sometimes maybe you go okay well you know so and so was checking out this record so i'm gonna see if i like it you know maybe i'm gonna listen to it but i'd say it's less about going oh a lot of people like this what is it about it you know i'm not necessarily as concerned about that as just like trying to keep an open mind i think like growing up so in the bluegrass world you know you kind of live in this little bubble sometimes of like all i'm listening to is bluegrass and as i you know for the first probably eight to ten years of my playing it was you know totally bluegrass 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 which i'm really grateful for because on one hand you get this unbelievable foundation you're very rooted in something and i think that can be important especially for a young musician to grow to have 
really solid root somewhere, something that they can kind of lean on a little bit. For sure. And the and bluegrass as a foundation is a solid. It's so, I mean, it re- totally. It requires you to play at this really, the facility it takes to really play bluegrass well. There's a really high standard, you yep. know, to all the people that I grew up loving and listening to that, you know, you, you're you learning just an unbelievable amount from from kind of staying in that one little area for a while. You you did good, Sierra <laughs> Oh, man. You've, you've learned your stuff, and oh, we're, we're huge fans. You know, the, the guys and I, when we were coming here, you know, we were all sort of just talking about your music and what you've done, and we're oh, just man. really impressed, you know. Well, thank and you. That waited. means a lot. Yeah. I'm fans of you guys, too. Well, I, I love what you guys gonna, do. We're going to throw down and jam tonight, and I'm Woo! really looking forward to that. But I want to talk a little bit about Weighted Mind. So it's a few years old now. Um, first question, personal question, just just for me here. What was it like working with Bela as a producer? What, what was his style? What did he bring to the process? What was that like? Yeah, well, it was really unbelievable. I mean, it's funny. It's like my answer is probably everything you would imagine. It was just really cool to work with somebody as as brilliant as Bela. Yeah. He's and for just... those of you, sorry to interrupt, for <laughs> no, those no. of you who don't know, Bela Fleck, banjo, virtuoso, Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones, and, and uh, he hasn't produced that many records, but he is known as a a great producer and so yeah so take us inside that process yeah well so funny enough I had been working on some new music and I had gone in the studio with this great engineer in Nashville a guy named Vance Powell and I was kind of producing myself and I cut these six tracks that were way more I guess you'd call them Americana it's like what is Americana you know but (laughs) kind of more like there was you know percussion on some things and like I played guitar acoustic guitar on a a bunch of tracks um you know there's electric guitar everything from band to fiddle. I mean, a lot of, a lot of like rootsy sounds still. But I cut these these six tracks, um, and most of the songs are actually wound up on the project I did with Balo that became Weighted Mind. Weighted Mind was one of the songs that okay. I cut in this completely different version with me playing guitar. And um, there was a song called Wings of the Dawn, Compass. Um, what became the opening piece called Stranded on on the project that right. was recorded as like this extended instrumental. Right. There's all these tracks that. Um, that I had recorded, but then I started getting like all this this feedback slash pushback a little bit from the record label that just wasn't really sure. They weren't really sure what the, to do with right. it. They were excited that I was doing something else, but just were kind of in this you know strange place. And, and I read too that from Bela too. You you handed off these demos to him, and some of them were there were things in there that he was into, but maybe to rework and sort of revisit. Yeah, totally. So well. So just to back up just a little bit, you know, talking about Alison Krauss, she's been like a wonderful, you know, friend and mentor of sorts for for many years. Um, and you know, I was just it's going good through this. <laughs> I, I'm so fortunate. I mean, she was my biggest hero, so it's like yeah. still really wild to me that she's somebody I can call up and be like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I need some advice, you know. Um, but I just kind of found myself in a slightly. Um, I had to use the word dark, but kind of like a dark place about it all, where I just was like, you know, I'm excited about these songs that I've written, and I I feel I felt like for the first time that, um, you know, I had spent all this time in the bluegrass community, which I, you know, again, grateful for, loved, but people, you know, kind of knew me as this mandolin player, but, like, my I had been writing a lot of songs over the, you know, 
the, the few years before recording Weight in Mind and really felt like it was time for me to sort of put that forward as like here's an album that's really about my songs and my songwriting not just and not that my other records were like hey check out all this it wasn't like total shred fest or anything I've always been very song oriented but you know it's the first time really writing like basically all the music yeah. for an album and so I knew it needed to be focused on that um, and I knew that I sonically just was ready to do something different because as I was writing it wasn't necessarily coming out in a real bluegrass style. Sure. So I knew it needed to be presented differently but then I you know, went and recorded these tracks kind of got too many cooks in the kitchen from like record label management just my mom I mean <laughs> you name it just too many people you know sometimes sure. you can share things too early and and it was a really good like learning experience um but but i kind of just had to step back and go you know what like i don't even know what i think about all this anymore yeah. like i just need to pause for a minute and so i remember like going to kraus and kind of just saying you know i'm trying to finish this record and i'm just at this point i was producing myself but um i felt a little bit doubted by some of the people around me like i know i was you know i get it i'm young but I, you know i felt sort of ready to do it but then i you know was getting this pushback so i thought you know what i just really want somebody in my corner and I now was take... that was that pushback like you wanted to push the envelope but they wanted you to sort of keep it more inside the box it's weird because on one hand I was hearing, oh, we're really excited that you want to do something that's not bluegrass. Sure. But then it's like the moment I try to do the thing that I think I need to do, it's just like, you know, before. At Carvana, we're in the business of driving you happy. And with the widest selection of used cars under $20,000, you're bound to find a car that'll put a smile on your face. Carvana gives you control by letting you customize your down and monthly payments. You can browse tens of thousands of cars online to find one within your budget, and you won't get surprised with any bogus fees. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for a vehicle. Carvana, we'll drive you happy. Availability may vary by market. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Before I even really had the opportunity to do it, I started getting a little bit of, you know, you know, just pushback. It was maybe, I, I think everybody means well, you mm -hmm. know, but I just remember like one person from, uh, from the record label saying to me like, well, you know, I just, you know, I think maybe you're trying to do too much. Like, I remember, you know, like, Allison, who I've always been compared to, and granted, she's my hero, but, you know, it was, uh, this was a frustrating comment to hear from me, was like, you know, she's had a perfectly great career without ever writing any of her own songs, you know? It's like there are a lot of things. Oh, my and God, to me, shame on the person who <laughs> that said that. crushed me because <laughs> it was crushing because I thought... You don't get what I'm trying to do. Like, like, not that I think that my song, you know, I, I'm not the type of artist that feels like my song's over everything else. You know, it's like a, a bad song is a bad song. I'm not trying to just say I have to write all my own stuff. But there was like a real feeling that I need to 
put this out here. I don't know sure. why. I don't know why I felt like for the first time, in order for people to really hear me as me, I need to put this out here. Amen. And it yeah. just kind of felt like like somebody was just going, you know, we think that you don't need to be trying to do that yeah. or like you're putting too much pressure on yourself or whatever. It just kind of got me in a weird spot. And so I started talking to Kraus about it and, and I was like, you know, I think I just really need to find somebody to produce me because, you know, somebody that really can be in my corner right. that understands what I'm trying to do. And um, Bela was her suggestion. And she suggested yeah. Bela. And and that kind of surprised me because I... I I've been a huge Bela fan my whole life, you know, but but it's funny because this was the record that I was going, this is like the Sierra Hole singer-songwriter record, not, you know, me, like, shredding mandolin mm-hmm. record mm-hmm. <laughs> necessarily. So I was like, huh. And because she, she said, you know who I think would be a good producer for you? She said, there's nothing musically he doesn't understand. And she said, I think he would be a great vocal producer. Cool. And, and, and she said, Bela. And so I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And then, you know, I mean, I knew Bela, but I wasn't close with him. You know, we just kind of crossed paths mm-hmm. over the years, played a little bit together. And uh, fast forward, like, a few months later, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. But a few months later, I was at the IBMA award show, and somebody taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around, and Bela and Abby were sitting right behind me. And I was like, huh, how funny is this? Just the guy I need to talk to. And that's where you guys made the connection. And we connected, and... and um, you know, one thing that Krauss had said to me, she said, well, even if he doesn't want to produce records or doesn't have time to do it, she said he would still be a really great person for you to just try to get some feedback from. Sure. Like, maybe you could go play your stuff for yeah. him and see if he has any thoughts for you. She said, I think that you would find working with him inspiring, which is really what I needed because I was getting the inspiration sort of sucked out of me by, you know, other from other yeah. corners, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, we just connected, and I kind of, you know, threw the idea out there that I would just love to get together. And he, you know, because he asked me, like, what have you been working on? And I was like, oh, funny, you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, we just kind of hit it off. And, um, you know, I ended up going to his house and and us talking about it, and I played him some things. And one of the first things he said to me, which I think was incredible advice, was like, you know, the production on this is really good. Like, the performances are all really good. Like, people are playing. But the thing that I think makes you really unique to you, I feel like, is maybe being covered up in these tracks. Because I was playing guitar quite a bit and all okay. of it. You know, it's like I think part of me was maybe trying to put forth my this other side of Sierra Hall so much that maybe... So simplify. Yeah. Because Weighted Mind is a very stripped-down instrumentation. Totally. It's mostly just mandolin, bass, and vocals mm-hmm. with Bela and then some guest vocalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a freaking great record. Man, I, thank I you. love it. And I it's really... really it. You know, it's an amazing balance of... And this is really hard to do. It's got a super strong unique factor that it's its own thing and that is the production the instrumentation but mostly the songwriting i mean the songs are really really unique and you can hear that bluegrass foundation come out but um it's a really strong original statement you know i i love it and i think that you know that it sounds like that advice to to let it be you because it that's what i hear that's what i love about it is you know it's really it, it is intimate 
sound yeah. and you're right there and you know it's mixed yeah. that way and it's played that way and it sounds like yeah. he was part of what, what took you in that well, direction. one of the things that he really pushed me to do which helped me I, I feel like was some of the best advice I've ever been given it really helped me grow tremendously I think was to have somebody like well so the, I'll never forget the first time I go over to his house and you know we haven't even talked about him producing the record yet this is just kind of like we're just you know, checking, it check, out. Yeah, checking yeah. our vibes a little oh, and sort yeah, yeah. of seeing what this process could look like, you know, and and uh, and he says, do you think you could just, you know, we were listening to some stuff and, and he said, do you think that you could just like play whatever song we had just listened to the more like produced version of it um, that I had recorded with Vance Powell with mm-hmm. me producing? He said, uh, can you just like play that for me on your mandolin? It was something that I'd written on guitar. And so then I was like, well. Yeah, let me think about it, you know, so then I was like, okay, so like I played, I think it was the song Compass, which is like the first vocal mm-hmm. track on the the record, and and I played it, and he, he, you know, he goes, that, he said, that's what I think that you need to put out there for people to hear, he goes, because, you know, people haven't heard you like that yet, and and so... It was strange for me because I, you know, I grew up playing bluegrass music always in an ensemble with four to five people. Mm. I ne- had never really thought that anybody would care to hear just me and my mandolin and my voice. Yeah. And to have somebody that I admire as much as Bela say, what if you did more of that? Sure. Kind of made me go, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Let me think about that. And so it was like kind of a little weird and intimidating, you know, to be sitting there playing solo for solo for Bela, you know, who's just such a great player and one of my heroes. But it was like having these kind of awesome lessons yeah. with Bela, these sessions where, you know, once that idea kind of came about, I started taking these songs, many of which I had already recorded. And, and going back to mandolin, which really is my instrument. I mean, yeah. I love guitar, and actually, sure. you know, fast forward, it's been like five years or something since we did Way to Mine. I'm in the process of working on a new record, and I'm kind of reintroducing the idea of me playing a little bit of guitar again. Yeah. But it's been really great to kind of, you know, discover my voice on the mandolin in a different way than it would have been as, you know, it had sort of been portrayed in my bluegrass well it's really you know i I do i I love it and it's cool to like sort of tie in bela's advice an artist a producer urging you to really do your own thing which i love versus some of that earlier advice that you got and it's such a precarious thing you know artists (laughs) ride that really fine line of inspiration and confidence with mixed with opinions from other people you know which yeah. of course have value and we all have people that we trust and we have our our mentors you know and and i love that it sort of came full circle like that because it's really an awesome record and and you know there's there's a, like i say a real strong kind of coming of age theme on there i'm curious to know sort of where you feel like you're at you're at now like what i know you've got a new record that is slated to come out early next year mm-hmm. and what what's the what's the current sierra hall vibe or what's the next thing that you're going to sort of put out there yeah so you know it's like having done the record like weighted mine that was so stripped down and then taking so much of what i learned from Bela and just trying to um, sort of 
make sure that I, you know, some of the main advice that he gave me was like, you know, making sure that I wasn't like covering myself up with a bunch of other stuff, which, mm-hmm. you know, kind of sounds like, well, yeah, that should be obvious. Like if you're making a, a solo record that you should leave room for yourself. But, you know, I love playing with other people and I love hearing other people yeah. play on stuff. So it's easy for me to just be like, no, why don't you do this? That sounds so good. <laughs> but also just trying to make sure that my voice is being heard in, in the way that really expresses me and, and what it is that I'm doing. Um, this time around, I knew I wanted to make a record that um, maybe use the studio in a slightly different way. So almost, um, you know, having an opportunity to, to play, like pretty much every record I've done so far has been whatever, like Weight in Mind was myself and Ethan Yojevitz on bass for the majority of the record. And we went out and we toured that record. We could basically play it no for no yeah. as in our live show. You, yeah. This time around, I kind of felt like I wanted to experiment with the idea of being able to have at least some of the music on this record. There are, there are things that are going to be on the record that are more live cuts or, you know, there's a couple intimate guitar vocal things. We've we've currently cut more music than we need, so we'll see what all actually makes it on the record. But, um, you know, there'll be a mix of some stripped down things that are just more, you know. All stuff you've written? Yeah, written or co-written. Co-produced it with with Shani. with Shani Gandhi, yeah. um, this great engineer in Nashville, and part of my wanting to use her is because sonically she just brings so much to the table. She's just sure. a really great engineer, and I knew I wanted to do some things where I built some of the tracks, so where I could go in and maybe play multiple instruments, or I wanted to be able to sing some of my own harmonies this time sure. around and experiment yeah. with, like recording in that way and mm-hmm. maybe it's not something i can go do live definitely not something i can go do live but but i wanted to just you know treat the songs you know individually as i thought they needed to be treated and yeah. so shawnee um was a great partner has been a great partner for working on this music with and you know also the first time that i've got to work with a woman um you know or or first time i've worked with another woman and somebody so close to my own age mm, um so it's okay. been a really kind of fun cool experience to work with somebody nice. that's more like a peer than say you know an older yeah. hero and you can and usually maybe, an older male hero yeah and you, you know? can maybe just go on a journey together your contemporary explore yeah. and feel empowered to be as much a part of that process as someone else rather than listening and taking in information and advice yeah well and i also feel like we've we've been a good pair to work together just because you know she's she's really good in you know in the engineering department and and she's got great ears you know even from like a producer standpoint yeah. you know of like you know, when it comes to singing, having somebody in there that just has a really good ear to go, yeah, you know what, I, this this lyric doesn't sound believable to me when you're singing it, or maybe you should try singing it like this. Yeah. You know, just like uh, we've, I don't know, it's just been really easy cool. to work with her. I and I think that's when out. you, you know, kind of enjoy the process the most is when yeah. you're working with somebody that just feels feels right. You yeah, know? and the studio too. I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of studio work and I'm a big believer in, you know, of course, as artists, we, the String Dusters, have had an ongoing conversation around, so we're going to record this music, how are we going to recreate it on stage? Sure. An obvious thing that you're always trying to figure out. But, you know, the studio is is a great place to, you know, try stuff that you can necessarily replicate on stage, and yeah. then that thing on stage is going to be its own thing. Yeah, you know? totally. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to check it out. Thank and you. And I want to I kind of shift gears a little bit, and talk about bluegrass and sort of 
where bluegrass is at and where it's headed. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier and I was saying, I think you have a really unique perspective on this because, you know, you've really walked the walk. You've sort of came up in the bluegrass ranks and, and as you said earlier, cut your teeth on a lot of really traditional bluegrass and couldn't agree more that it's an amazing foundational musical element. I mean, technically speaking, the picking, the singing, there's something in there and it's not just about doing it right. It's also a really soulful deep thing so there's not only the technical prowess but also you know you can really emote through that music and that's when you hear you know Monroe or Flatten Scrubs yeah. it's like man that music really knocks you out but fast forward to sort of the current day and Weighted Mind and now on to your new record you're totally doing your own thing <laughs> and I love it I think that that's great I'm a really firm believer that evolution of the music is going to be the thing that keeps it alive because if traditional bluegrass just stays the same and remains sort of the art of imitation no matter how good it is it won't find new ears totally and it needs to evolve and so i guess first and foremost thank you for being oh. a part of that well, process man, thanks for the encouragement <laughs> the, well it's it you know I, I i can tell that you're stepping out and doing your thing and you can hear that in the music and that's you know, it's really, it's compelling, it's original, it's really good. And I'm, I'm curious, first of all, to try and get inside, like, did you feel pressure from the bluegrass community when you started to do some things differently? Or at any point where, you know, you felt like you're stepping outside the box and maybe you were going to alienate fans or you're hearing opinions about doing things too differently? Like, did you were you aware of that? Did you sense that? How did that impact um, the direction of things? Well, it's funny because you know I went in and when I was making the the record that I you know what ended up becoming weighted mine, but the tracks that I cut originally, you know I think that was maybe in the back of my mind a little bit, but I just knew I had to do something different. So I was trying to just you know forge ahead and do my thing. Um, but then I think all the frustration set in for all the things I mentioned earlier. And then by the time I got working on it with Bela, there was a part of me that was so far over worrying about it. I just wanted to make the record I needed yeah. to make. Because it had been a long time coming. You know, this music that I'd just kind of just been chipping away at and, and trying to figure out how to present. And finally, by the end of Weighted Mind, it's like, cool, I'm excited about this record. Bela's excited about this record. And that that's good enough for me i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna just put it out there and not worry about it i just yeah. gotta do what i gotta do and i honestly feel so lucky because for the most part i really didn't get any kind of crazy i mean at least to my face <laughs> who knows what people are saying you know um but but i i really felt really embraced by good. the bluegrass community by putting Great. out that record maybe it. maybe more than ever before and it really surprised me like like it's funny weighted mine was nominated for like album of the year at ibma and i was like you know i hadn't had bluegrass albums that had done that and it sort of confused me a little bit but i was like wow well that's really nice to feel like you know i'm still feeling really oh, yeah. really welcomed by this community that i Definitely. love so much yeah. and you know it's like i don't want to alienate anybody but um i also you know don't want to just 
do something that feels unauthentic right. either. You know, we have to, I think, as musicians, make sure that we're following. I mean, people don't realize uh, if you're not a musician, I don't think anyway, that people can imagine what it's like to go out and play shows night after night after night. And if you're not doing something you really love and that you feel inspired and good about putting out there, I mean, that's a lonely existence. You know, yeah. it's like I don't want to stand on stage and sing songs that don't feel like what I'm supposed to be doing. Amen, sister. You know? <laughs> you can only run from the bluegrass police for so long, people. I mean, and <laughs> let me just back up by saying, though, I love, I love that music. I love bluegrass, but, you know... Um, I, for one, am a woman. I can't. I couldn't sound like Bill Monroe vocally if I wanted to. Like I don't have the voice of Jimmy Martin oh, yeah, or all these people that I love. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, I I came of age listening to people like Alison Krauss and yeah. listening to bands like Nickel Creek. It's like, of course, that's going to be in me. That's going to be sure. the influence. I never got to meet Bill Monroe. Never got to hear the man play live. Of course, like I I go back now as you know, old, as an older person and just like love that music i mean we were just listening to like some old bill stuff just the other day um just last oh, weekend on the road and it's just it's so good it's amazing yeah but like the thing that i think makes it amazing is that it is so authentic to the man himself yeah. and of course like like i said i'm grateful to have had the foundation of learning all that stuff but it's like you know we're kind of i think by trying to innovate or trying to move forward you're actually able to kind of honor the spirit of Bill Monroe himself just the by doing that innovator. because he's the innovator the original, you know? the original innovator no doubt and people like he didn't just copy somebody he he did what he thought he needed to do and in turn created this music that we're all so grateful that he did and I'm not trying to say I would ever do anything like that because you know it's like how you know that's like there's only a Bill Monroe that comes along every so yeah. so often. But, you know, I think we have to at least try to, to follow our heart and, and play music that feels at least sincere. Well, and he tried a lot of crazy stuff. He did, I know. the way that did not go so well. And sometimes and when people like act like, oh, Bill Monroe, like, that's not what Bill Monroe would do. But I'm just like, how much have you really dug into Bill Monroe's music? I know. Because, like, I mean, he did a lot of things oh, that yeah. were crazy and innovative. And people and don't a, always talk about that, you know. Don't, they don't talk about it at all. As a banjo player, you know, it's like Earl Scruggs. I mean, for the a big portion of his career, he was doing the Earl Scruggs Review, and it was like psychedelic concerts yeah. with uh, <laughs> drums and electric guitar. But you know, people always hindsight is is twenty twenty, and they have a very selective yeah. memory about those things. And I'm sure, even though, and it's great to hear that you feel like you've been encouraged on this journey because that's the way that it should be. And also interesting, I, I never really thought about it when what you said, like you're a woman. And so the precedent for what's out there for what you're expected to copy is maybe, maybe a little, different. a little sure. less solidified than, you mm -hmm. know, and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, and you see traditional bluegrass these days and it's sort of kind of stuck in this little place where they know that the music is great. And I have their back on that, you totally. know, and even though the same people are nominated every year for a lot of IBMA awards, sure. those people deserve the awards. And they're, they're really great. amazing yeah, sure. pickers. But for the music to move forward, it's really got to evolve. Yeah, and totally. it is, you know, they're the scene that, you know, that that we're a part of the string dusters and bands like Green Sky and, and you know, Salmon. And it's 
it's evolving yeah. and it's catching a lot of new ears. Totally. And, and I think that's amazing. I mean, because it's, you know, in an ideal world, you have people that just love all kinds of music, that's right? right? That that can, you know, that the same fans that come out to your show could hear a Larry Sparks album and go, "Whoa. Well, this is insane, you know? That that to me would be the goal and I, you know, I think that it's amazing that you guys can bring a younger audience to the table that might in turn go backwards you know yeah. dig dig that's... from from the more modern stuff that's happening now and go cool i gotta know more about this and that's start digging thing. in and you know i i'm so proud when someone says that through the string dusters they like went back to flat and scrugs yeah you know? and totally. that's that's the real stuff and um you know even though bluegrass does have sort of this lingering kind of identity crisis you know it's it's just it's a great thing that people like you are out there who are, I say, doing the music justice. And I don't mean that because you're playing traditional bluegrass. I just mean that you, you know, and this, I think, also is sort of the String Dusters mission, are taking the things from bluegrass that are so potent, so musical, so awesome, and recreating them or just letting them live on in your original sound. Yeah. And I think that's the goal, that's, you know, is just to take the stuff that you really love. I mean, that's really all we kind of do, right, is get inspired by something and try to take those the things that we love, whether it's bluegrass or any genre, you yeah. know, take those things we love and, and you know, have it be um, spoken out through your own identity that's somehow, right. you know. And I always say traditional bluegrass, and when I say traditional, I mean, you know, like the old stuff or... Flatten Scruggs, Seldom Seen, all, all the good stuff, Country Gentlemen. That stuff, bluegrass, traditional bluegrass will live on for one simple reason, because it's really badass. It's awesome. And there's yeah, exactly. n- and it's not, it doesn't require that people are sort of redoing it over yeah. and over. We all know that's great. And that's not, not to take anything away from those bands, but in their effort to sort of connect with the bigger bluegrass world that someone like you or, you know, I think some like the string dusters are a part of, you know, there's got to be some recognition that, and we notice it all the time, fans who come out to hear us who don't know anything about traditional bluegrass, they can love 10 forms of music. Totally. They don't have They don't have that f- same, like, protective nature, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. And if it's not this way, then... I think it's fear-based, you know, and I get it because, you know, it's like you love something and you're worried that it's, like, gonna die. But I agree with you that it's so powerful and so wonderful. It's not gonna die. It's That's not right. gonna die. I mean, you know, like, I've, I've, for the most part, like I said, been supported as I've tried different things. And it's been really, um, I don't want to say it surprised me, like, not that I, like, ever, like, doubt my audience, but but just to even, like, you know, like, this festival tonight, I've got, you know, Eddie Barbash on saxophone and Mike Seal on electric guitar. And, you know, oh, that classic this. bluegrass <laughs> saxophone sound, everybody. I know, I know, but it's like, so I did this workshop earlier here at the festival, and, and so... Uh, John, the guy that was hosting the workshop, was like, yeah, so Sierra's got, you know, this ensemble. And the whole crowd went, woo! Like, and I was like, oh, my gosh, okay, cool. Like, they're excited to, to get to hear something. And I think that people are becoming more and more open to thing things. But it's like, you know, like I, I told... I told that crowd, I said, I, you know, if you had said, oh, one day you're going to, you know, be touring with saxophone and an electric guitar, I would have just been like, oh, you're so crazy. Like, I'm not going to be doing that. If you told me that I was going to be, you know, making a record like Weighted Mine with myself and and a bassist like Ethan, you know, just so stripped down, yeah. I probably wouldn't have really envisioned that either. So it's, it's you know, 
I think the music sometimes can even surprise us to where it takes us and, and, you know, if you kind of try to follow it. And I've just really tried to go, what inspires me? You know, like, I, I, I mean, I like the saxophone, but I never went, oh, I think I need saxophone in my music. It really had nothing to do about the instrument itself. It's like yeah. I heard this guy, Eddie Barbash, play, yeah. and I heard him jamming um, with Jake Jolliffe, uh, who's, you know, mutual friend sure, of ours yeah. playing bound to ride by ralph stanley and eddie was shredding on the saxophone yeah. like playing like bluegrass the rhythm and the the phrasing and everything was it was obvious that he had been learning like bluegrass tunes fiddle tunes and old time tunes on the saxophone and i was just like what is this who is this guy and i just thought man i want to play with I him like how cool like that. is that yeah. And so, you know, it's like, no, it's not that I'm like, oh, saxophone. It's like, no, that's a, a musician that I went, oh, that's inspiring. Mm-hmm. Same thing with somebody like Mike Sill. I saw him play with Jerry Douglas at Telluride, yeah. you know, Jerry Douglas Band. And, and was just like, man, this guy is really, uh, he's unique and interesting in the way he plays. And so I think I'm just trying to, you know, as far as like the things that I'm doing, I don't know what my band will look like or sound will be like in the next two to three years you know it's hard to to know but i think that's part of what makes it exciting too is just kind of going what is inspiring in a moment like what's going to keep me inspired and who are the musicians that inspire me so it's more about for me not trying to choose a particular instrumentation right now um but rather go who are the like you know, who are the musicians that inspire me and the spirit in which they play, not the instruments they play. And if you can per se surround yourself with that kind of energy, the right good things, things will happen, happen, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so in so doing a project like Weighted Mind by stripping so many things away, I think helped me at least has helped me be open to as I've kind of started to come back into you know, more of a full band. And there's like currently no saxophone on my new record. So that's interesting too, because I love playing with Eddie. It's just like, you know, kind of figuring out like what, what are the musicians in a live context? And, you know, like this album that I'm finishing right now, isn't the only record I'm ever going to make. I want to make another bluegrass album at some point. I would love to make a really great bluegrass album. I want to make a mandolin project soon. It's like, there's a lot of things that I still want to do. And I think that's what, you know, hopefully fans as they come to shows and they're watching you guys play or they're watching me play or whatever, like just kind of understanding like, you know, every album, every project, every live show is kind of its own thing. It's its own moment in time, you know? And when you hear people say, well, I wish, I I wish they'd play more bluegrass. I wish they'd play more bluegrass. It's like, I love bluegrass. And if you were with me at every show, my husband, Justin and I, we, play as a duo some something we're doing more and more of and we're playing quite a bit of bluegrass as a duo going back to some stuff that we grew up loving and playing covering some larry spark songs and things like that um so you know i think by me kind of stepping away from it a little bit and kind of chasing after my own original thing whatever that becomes or is kind of almost strengthens my love for bluegrass even mm-hmm. more because when I do have a chance to go back and play it, there's this absolute childlike joy that I get from doing it that's just really rewarding, mm-hmm. you know? I love that. So, well, I think I should say part of the reason that you find that people are digging your music and not necessarily judging it, bluegrass or not, is just because it's really good. Well, And, you. you know, and I think... 
I loved what you just said there, and, you know, lucky for us listeners, you're at the start of what appears to be an awesome and wide-ranging career, and um, if you guys have not checked Sierra out, make sure to give her music a listen. It's really incredible. And I just can't thank you enough for coming to hang with me Man, today. Man, thanks talk for having music. me. And we're going to jam tonight. It's going to be awesome. So I'm excited. Sarah, and can't wait so to much. hear you know future episodes of this. It's going to be a great podcast. I know. So congrats on awesome. launching thank, this thing. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wrap on episode three of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks with episode four, which features my interview with John Stickley one of the most innovative bluegrass-based acoustic guitar players out there today. Thanks again for listening, and remember that you can check out Inside the Musician's Brain as a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.